the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle. I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. Let's talk about the future of plastics. problem with plastic is it's very convenient, but it's hard to get rid of. But at the University of Washington, there is uh, some very interesting work going on to create a plastic that could potentially degrade in your backyard at the right time. Eleftheria rumeli is working on this. So this is based on a form of algae, right? Yeah, so spirulina is actually a cyanobacterium. However, because it is uh, photosynthesizing, people often uh, cross-list it as algae. Okay. Uh, it is a microorganism that is abundant, uh, and because it photosynthesizes, it's very beneficial to, for us to find extra uses for it besides food because it has the ability while it grows to capture CO2 from our atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So. I wouldn't think it would be a replacement for plastic because when I visualize algae or bacteria or whatever, it's, you know, it's gloppy. It's, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it liquid. But you've given me samples of it here, and you can't see them, but you can hear them. These are, these are two black cubes and a, uh, a black University of Washington W, which are made of spirulina, and they, are, they look just like and feel like just like hard plastic. And maybe you can step on one of them on the cube so that you really? can believe that it is uh, as strong. So it is stronger than it? cement, actually. Actually, if I step on it, it doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't seem to be injured in any way. Yeah. So that I'm I'm shocked. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> so so how would this be used then in uh, in packaging? So there may be different many uses for these materials. Uh, primarily, people think about food packaging because this material is made of organic matter. So this is actually from food um, Mm -hmm. sources. So when it degrades, it will break up into proteins, carbohydrates, lipids, the basic components of any food. So people um, tend to associate these types of materials with food packaging just for uh, from their end of life perspective. Mm. However, so you could eat the packaging. You could. <laughs> <laughs> I could eat this. Is, I'd have to have much stronger teeth to well, eat this stuff. Other right? people have to study first the uh, f- the health effects, but yeah. yes, you could. However, their strength, as you can tell by yourself, the strength and stiffness that those materials have actually make them more appropriate for structural applications like your desk that you mm-hmm. have here, your phone, racks, bookshelves, cases. They can carry a lot of load really? before they break. Now, But I also read that they were that these materials are also brittle and they're not waterproof. Absolutely. So this is not like a product that we're making. This is fundamental research, right? Yeah. So it's the first step towards our understanding of how can we use these building blocks to make something useful with an end of life that is desirable, not detrimental for our environment. Right. So we do need to work on the wa- a waterproofing. Uh, so at this point, you could not you could not make, for example, a milk carton out not of this. Not yet. Yeah. You would have to apply a coating or like even wood. If you go out to chop wood to make your chair, you would not use it or your chopping board. You would not use it like that. You would seal it. Right. So you would need we would need to develop strategies for that if these were to actually uh, translate to products. Yeah. Right now we don't have that. One of the things that's frustrating to me, and and, and I th- I think most people feel this way. We want to be responsible. We want to mm-hmm. recycle plastic, but it is almost impossible to do a good job of it because there are so many different types of plastic. And every time I say, okay, uh, I tell my wife, let's recycle, they says, what number is it? I, say, I don't know what number it is. Yeah. Why can't there be either one standard type of plastic or some kind of regulation that says if it can't be recycled, you can't make it even to begin with? That is 
a very, very big question. And I can assure you that all the scientific community that works on polymers and plastics, we are focusing on solving that with different, from different points of view. You need different plastics because you have different needs. Your gla- you, you put it as a hip replacement for your, in your body. You right. put That's it as one a thing. tooth yeah. implant. You put it as a hydrogel for your contacts. Mm-hmm. All of these materials have different properties. Therefore, you need different plastics right. to begin But, I mean, with. my leg implant is not going to be recycled on a regular basis. We're talking about the kind of plastics that we consider disposable now. We don't, we, yeah. is, is, there a, is there a way to standardize disposable plastics so it can all be easily recycled or – made like like this stuff to uh, to degrade naturally in your backyard it's very difficult to have them all recyclable uh, in the same waste stream because you need different properties for your bags that contain mm-hmm. food and your cup and your cutlery these are different types of materials we call them plastics but it's like saying all metals are the same. They're not. Steel is different than aluminum and so on. The same is for plastics. So it is very difficult for us to find ways to reprocess wh- all of them when they are blended. And often in our products, we use this multi-layer s- system in which we have different layers of different plastics. And that's what makes this, along with the contamination of your sub- shampoo bottles, these kinds of um, right. residues, all of these make it extremely difficult and challenging for people to recycle. But there are, uh, well, Europe is doing a little better uh, compared to the U.S. in terms of regulations and increasing the rate of recyclability and compostability, actually. Uh, But U.S. is uh, trying to follow up as well. And there is a need for incentives, from like uh, from the government and everything, but also regulations from communities or even the government, and they are being, I guess, discussed. It they are not implemented right now. So in your community, you may not even have a collection system for yeah. your recycling. Maybe you don't even have access to composting. So even that, it wouldn't. Even if you have compostable materials, not all of them are actually compostable in your backyard, right? So actually, the majority of your compostables that you can buy today. If you look at the bag, it says compostable. Do not put it in your backyard. Like, it's <laughs> industrially compostable. Right. I don't even know how many of those we have in the city of Seattle. And they don't take all types of, pl- of, of uh, plastics or compostables right. because of the difficulty in sorting and cleaning them. There is no like one universe or one solution that works for everything. And the way of designing like new materials to solve this problem um, is one way of approaching it. Another way is to find what to do with the waste that we already have generated. How can we create new materials from the existing waste? I don't work in that, but other people do. And mm-hmm. it's very, very important that they keep doing it. Yeah. Well, I think the ideal would be if you could, yeah, compost in your backyard. If not, if not, turn it into actual compost. At least turn it into something akin to, I don't know, wood chips that uh, you could use to fertilize your lawn or something like that. Because the... Um, it's it's very disheartening to see those pictures from time to time, either of a garbage island in the ocean or these landfills, you know, with seagulls hovering overhead, picking at the scraps of, you know, dirty pieces of plastic. And, and of course, the, the reports we get of microplastics showing up in fish and eventually ending up uh, in, the, in the food supply again. So can you uh, – maybe we could breed new species of sea animals that could actually eat plastic. How about that? Well, people are researching actually different types of microbes that are feeding off of waste and Mm -hmm. metabolizing it even to make something useful actually metabolically. Mm -hmm. So make new polymers kind of in the 
uh, as a replacement for their fat. People are actually studying that. And it is one, of course, it's not, it's not solved and it is absolutely not scaled. And the minute that you study anything that is like, you know, living, the cost is always the... However, I, I would like to say that the end of the preferred end of life, even for our materials, is not compost, composting them or discarding them mm-hmm. after a single use. First of all, reuse, of course, but these are actually make, uh, reprocessable. So they are recyclable in the only type of recycling actually available in the U.S. Like 99% of available, available recycling is mechanical recycling rather than chemical. Mm-hmm. So that means grinding, grinding and remelting them. it. So we can do that with those, and that's the preferred end of life. Right. It's so it's sort of like aluminum then? Yes. It's not the to discard them. This is the worst case scenario. Right. You want to just have a, have a place where you can return it when you're done with it. It gets ground up and then used again. Yes. Or in this case, eaten. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. It does, How can I, we encourage people to not eat that? that? <laughs> I know, but now, now that I smell it, it does it does smell like a, some snack food, foods so, that I'm familiar with, like uh, that uh, that seaweed stuff. Yeah. So if you, you come to our lab in any outreach event, you will see that we have a bunch of different seaweeds and teas like matcha tea yeah. or strawberry or acai berry. So you can make this into tea then? Yeah, you could if, if I put it in, in, in a our cup of hot water. That's what we do exactly. We don't drink it afterwards. Because that's that's what you have as your luncheon beverage. Is that you just take the, uh, yes. the structural blocks and make a tea out of it? You can imagine though that you cannot use it as a cup. No, of course, right well, obviously not unless you drink really <laughs> fast. But I think I think that's fantastic that you can yeah. that you can actually manipulate these uh, these microbes and, and make something. It's it's actually quite surprising to play with this. So do you do you think then there? Is ultimately, with enough research, a a solution to this this uh, problem where you could make something that could because liquids, I think, are the big deal, right? You can make something that could that could take the place of plastic water bottles, and uh, you know, let's say a month later, this would put it, you know, you'd be required to drink it. You couldn't just keep it in storage forever, but that a month later, if left to its own devices, it just sort of disappears. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. I just want to mention that this is one way. Uh, and also another benefit in this case is we are using only renewable biomass. So there is no petroleum-derived um, product that is mm-hmm. used in this case. So it's like a, a beginning, the sourcing and the end of life are favorable. Uh, but these are only one, um, again, one approach. I don't want to imply that this is the only thing that people yeah. are working on. But I do think it's promising, and I do think we're heading to the right direction. How fast? I don't, I don't know, though. How long does it take to grow enough material to make these little? Because this cube is about what would you say, two centimeters by? Yeah, yeah. it's like American size, so one by one by one inch. <laughs> <laughs> okay, one by one. So it's like like a giant uh, oversized sugar cube. So how long yeah. would it take to grow this much material? Mm, that's a good question. I wouldn't know how to answer because people have been optimizing the growth of these microbes for because they're useful for biofuels as well as um, pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. So they have uh, made it so that they can grow them faster. In our lab, because our purpose is not to produce, we don't re- we didn't grow them faster. Don't worry about that. And actually, yeah. some of these materials, not the ones that I brought you, but other ones, we actually get from a local farmer. So we have one seaweed farm here in the state of Washington that is... Um, state-funded, among, amongst other sources of funding, um, to cultivate this type of seaweed so that they can um, decrease the temperature of the water, provide habitat, but also battle ocean acidification. So there's environmental reasons for the farmer to, to grow this uh, in our shores. So, but when, and because it's photosynthesizing, so you're uptaking CO2. But when they are done, so that they can put the new cro- uh, crops in, 
they don't have anything to do with it. So we get it afterwards and we make uh, useful materials out of it. Um, now that seaweed grows like seasonally, so it takes mm-hmm. like four months. But in this type, the microorganisms grow way faster. So what would How it, fast, I don't know. So w- w- what's the cost? Is, is the cost similar to ordinary plastic? No. It's not. It, it is going to be higher than. How much higher? Uh, for that, you would need the proper techno-economic analysis. That's the tool that we would be using. Mm-hmm. And we haven't done actually that study yet. Because like our process is not optimized. Uh, we are doing development of fundamental science like this. We didn't know two years before. Sure. Somebody else, like a process engineer or a chemical engineer, is going to have to work with us so that we can design an optimal way of processing it. Right now we do like the least uh, economic or slowest kind of process. So we would yeah. need a little bit more time to... Okay, but um, what's your what's your gut feeling? Is this something that could be mass-produced yes. at a similar cost to the plastics we have now? I do think so. That's why we filed the patents for it as well. Yeah. Uh, because I think you, you don't have to use the high-purity, high-grade material, food-grade material that we use now. You can also use waste streams. Or we can... I have had people reach out to me... Um, that uh, grow different ty- similar types of these organisms actually in toxic water, so you cannot con- consume that for food. Yeah. So I do envision that we can take that or maybe the byproduct of fuel um, manufacturing because these are used to make fuel- biofuels and aviation fuels and stuff. So maybe we can get their streamline their waste streamlines, so that would decrease the cost. And, and so another- how, how long have you been doing this research? I mean, how long did it take to get to this point? I would say intensely about two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, I have been working on this for the past like five years, also during my postdoc. Not so what did it feel like when you finally came up with a formula that, that allowed you to make a solid block like this? This was, I have to say, pretty incredible for me. Uh, first of all, I'm a physicist, mm-hmm. so I'm not used to actually making You're stuff. You're studying <laughs> galaxies and black holes usually. No, other smarter <laughs> physicists do I that. I study <laughs> materials. Okay. Uh, But I have to say, also back to the economic point, because we are actually using equipment that is already available for our plastic manufacturing industries, the same equipment that brought you this case of your computer and monitor and whatnot, this is the type of equipment that we are actually using. So I do think that this is an important thing that would drive the cost down. So it's not like we have to invent some new technology to process them. I see. And that was something that five years ago when we started working on that, we didn't really know. So you could use the same kind of molds that are already being used for plastics. I see. Exactly. Good. That's what makes me a little bit more optimistic, I guess. (laughs) So you've got the patents filed. How long before we see this on the marketplace? What a a difficult question. (laughs) I think... I don't know. I would be surprised if you see anything similar to that in like in the one year or two year uh, milestone. But definitely less than less than ten years. I would say maybe mm-hmm. five years or so, because you do need a lot of more studies. Like how do you protect that to make it actually usable in an yeah. actual in an environment? These we have been using, storing in my lab and in my office for I don't know two three years. Nothing happens to them. Um, if they are in this environment, dry. Mm-hmm. But if you take them out, even in Seattle, where we have high humidity, <laughs> uh, but if you take them out in wa- and you expose them to water, of course, no. They will start degrading. So yeah. we would need to, to work on those properties, mm-hmm. actually. Well, being that they're also food, if I made a bookshelf out of this, would it attract insects or anything? Yes, if you don't seal it, it would. So you wouldn't... Really? Actually, inside, I haven't observed, like, fungal... Um, 
colonies in our materials in my office. Uh, but this is not like a real, you would need to do a study yeah. for that. If we seal it, it should be okay. Yeah. Well, I think that's fascinating work. So uh, are you having a good time doing this? Or yeah, do you, absolutely. And I have to say the students are actually incredibly motivated and engaged with this research because I do see it also in my teaching, not just in my own research group. I do see how, how all our students from material science, mechanical engineering, chemical engineering, they are so motivated to make a positive impact. And because I do small snippets of what we find, I do introduce in my classes uh, as like uh, what's kind of uh, new and up and coming in research. And I do see how they they really want to contribute. And that's why I have a relatively large team for a new assistant professor. It's like uh, I have about 20 people. So that's kind of a lot. And that shows that um, all our students want to... Many of our students, I guess, are excited to contribute to that uh, goal. It's not just like me. Yeah. <laughs> so, Theria, the one thing that strikes me about the research you're doing in designing this new plastic, I know it's still probably years away, but the point is you're, you're starting your design process thinking about how you will recycle. You're thinking about that at the beginning of the development process instead of trying to figure out what to do uh, on the fly after you've already come up with something. Yeah, exactly. And this is um, one of the fundamental green chemistry and engineering principles that we even teach our students. I teach materials processing, so I teach about that. Uh, We have to think before we start designing the material for the multiple life cycles, uh, if you're going to make different products after the first end of life or how you're going to degrade or recycle. You have to think about that before you start. And other principles that we actually apply here uh, are minimal solvent uh, usage because there are some um, organic solvents in particular that are extremely toxic for the environment. So this is processed only with water because we knew from the beginning that we have to minimize um, any solvent usage. And then there's also uh, waste that you generate during the process. So another important thing that we were considering is we have to have a wasteless transformation. Harvest all the biomass and use it as is. Do not extract or create new waste streams from Mm -hmm. it. The price that we pay for that, it is that this is not the strongest material it could be. We can make way stronger materials if we start breaking down the components and arranging them in a different uh, way. But then you're generating waste and the energy that you input to start taking things out, it counts towards the um, environmental footprint of your process. So things like that, your the way that you would process your material and designing for end of life, these are very fundamental principles that now we teach our students also to think about. That's, I mean, that represents a tremendous shift from the way uh, we've been doing it so far. You have a generation now of, of scientists like you who are saying, we're not going to develop something unless we know up front that it can be recycled and reused responsibly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's why we have to also emphasize the end-of-life option, even in this case, because we know how we know how we anticipate that it would break down. That's great. But still, we have to make sure that we study it thoroughly before any of this is launched. Because also sometimes, you know, new science is uh, discovered. So there is no guarantee that we hypothesize how it would break down, but we still have to prove it before we deploy. Just want to be sure, even though it's a natural material, you still have to prove exactly. that it's safe. Yeah, exactly. exactly. 
Well, um, I think people will remember this as the dawn of a new age of convenient but also responsible packaging. Perfect. Thank you. <laughs> Eleftheria Rumeli is a UW Assistant Professor of Material Sciences and Engineering. Thank you, Eleftheria. Thank you as well. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form, unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast. And you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's Morning News, you can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's Morning News. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in.